Amen. Thanks, Mike. Good morning, church. It's good to see you all here. Hope you're doing well. Uh, we are starting Second Peter today. Uh, we spent 10 weeks going through First Peter. I think this will be about a five-week journey to get through Second Peter. Uh, we're going to hit the first four ver- verses today. Uh, I want to do just a quick uh, kind of housekeeping announcement first uh, before we get started. That seems somewhat unrelated, but it actually is related. Um, we, we talk about on Sundays um, about how our giving is part of our worship. Um, and that, that's part of the joy we have in worship, actually, is, is giving. And so um, we have realized something going on um, in, the, uh, in the mailing system um, we want to bring to your attention. So um, uh, Debbie Douglas, our finance manager, caught this, that um, if you are giving through bill pay and your bank is mailing in the checks for you, we're not getting all those checks. We're getting most of them, but not all of them. Um, it took a few members coming to us saying, hey, why aren't y'all cashing my checks? And, uh, and us going, we didn't know that we weren't getting them because we didn't know that you had sent it or your bank had sent it. And so um, we have done a lot of work uh, behind the scenes with post office trying to remedy this, but um, we, don't, we haven't found a satisfying conclusion or solution to this. So because um, we believe that giving is more than donating, it's part of our worship, we want to treat your giving with honor and we want to bring that to your attention. So if you, if you give that way, bill pay, um, first of all, just check and make sure that the checks are actually getting deposited. I promise you, if we're receiving, we're, we're depositing those. Uh, we we, we want to steward your gifts well. Um, but um, if, if you're maybe finding that your checks aren't making it here or you just want to know what the other options are, um, I want to encourage you to see um, Debbie Douglas, our finance manager. She's usually working the welcome desk out here on Sundays. Or you could just email info at srchurch.tv. Um, that's that same email address you see all over the place, um, and you can get some guidance there, more information even about that, that problem. Um, we're, we're not announcing this to you because we want more money from you. We're announcing it because we want to honor your gift, uh, your financial gifts as part of your worship. And so we want to bring that to your attention and let you know about that. So there's that. Again, if you have any other questions, Debbie Douglas, or email us at info at, and we can get you set up um, and get, you, get, get that cleared up for you. All right, so um, we're only going to make it through four verses today. Um, last week, we saw just how much you can get out of like three verses. And there are a lot of uh, potential rabbit trails um, in these four verses. Um, there's just a lot of quick references kind of embedded in what Peter opens with that could take us in a number of different directions. Uh, today, I really feel strongly convicted not to chase all those rabbits, uh, but to stay focused on the main thing and let the main thing be the main thing, lest we in some way might miss it. Um, because Peter is opening his letter with a beautiful um, expression of the gospel that I want us to see. Now, First Peter uh, the theme that we really drew on was this idea that in the midst of suffering, you can be full of hope. That was Peter's call to these Christians who were suffering. Um, he didn't just call them to hang on to hope by a thread. He said, no, actually, you can be full of hope. And so as we move now to his second letter, which is written somewhere around two to four or five years later, so not a lengthy amount of time, um, his focus is shifting a little bit um, to this idea that even while you are suffering, you can still grow spiritually. Don't check out from the work God is doing in your life because things are, in fact, hard. And so even today, we're talking about the idea of living a godly life in the midst of suffering and persecution. The title of the sermon today is coming right out of the passage, uh, Partakers of the Divine Glory. And really the theme of, of these first four verses is 
all that God has granted or given to us as a gift and the means by which we get these gifts. Okay, so we're going to be looking at those two different things today as we move through uh, 2 Peter, uh, verses 1 through 4. So I'm going to start in verse 1 uh, to get us started. Here's how he begins. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There's some similarities to how he opened his first letter, uh, but there's also some, some changes he's made to the way he introduces himself and the way he addresses his audience. First of all, he adds in the description of himself as a servant. He doesn't do that in the first letter. First letter is just, I'm Peter, I'm an apostle, and then he goes right into it. This particular letter, he felt the need to add this description. We don't want to make too much of this, um, but some commentators would say it's an idea, the idea that he's growing in his knowledge of God's grace and growing in humility, and now he's like, oh, I'm not just an apostle, I'm a servant too. That might be what's going on. Um, we don't know, but it's interesting. Peter's referring to himself this way. Um, but really what follows after that is, I think, really significant into understanding this, really the gist of the letter. Because in the first letter, he referred to the audience as chosen exiles by the foreknowledge of God. So already in his introduction, he's addressing their circumstances, their identity, and why he's writing the letter. Right? Because they had been exiled out of Rome. They've been exiled out of the larger Roman cities into the smaller rural communities where they could be dismissed or forgotten uh, because of their commitment to follow Jesus. And so he was addressing the fact, yeah, you've been exiled, but that doesn't mean you're not still chosen. You are chosen exiles, and it doesn't mean that God isn't watching, right? You are chosen exiles by the foreknowledge of God. So even in his introduction, he's covering a lot of ground and kind of setting the stage for what he's going to say and what he's going to write in the letter. And so here, if we look at the same kind of part of the letter, we're going to see something worth taking note of. He says to those who, instead of chosen exiles, he says to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And then the means by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. So I'll walk through this for a minute. Um, one of the things that's important to recognize here is um, even in this wording here, there's still the idea of chosen. Um, and so he's talking to those who have obtained something. Um, this, this Greek word is the idea of receiving something. So it's not like they went out and obtained, like earned it. They've been actually given a gift. That word could be used even to receive something at the roll of the dice, meaning you had nothing to do with it. Okay, so even, even just in that one word, the idea is that whatever you have has been given to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't have to work hard for it. You've obtained it, or it's been granted to you as, as a gift. But he says something interesting here. It's a Greek word, isotimos, which means equal standing or equal in dignity, equal in honor, equal in value. So if we go back to the first letter and look at how he addresses them and how it addresses the circumstances and what was going on maybe in their hearts, we begin to apply that same thing here. We're going to see throughout this letter, right, that 
the idea of that, maybe even why he even called himself a servant, was this idea that he wanted the audience to see themselves with equal dignity and honor and value. That somehow, potentially in the exile, they had begun to see themselves as less. I guess we're kind of the, the stepkids in the kingdom of God. We didn't get to stay in Rome like those other Christians. And so here we are, exiled, suffering for Jesus. And maybe they began to see themselves as less. And so he opens with this idea, I want you to see yourself in equal standing with us. Again, may have been the reason why he added that servant to his title. You and I, we are e- we're in equal standing in the kingdom of God. So he says this, those who have obtained or been granted a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to use that almost exact same phrase in a minute to talk about God and Jesus in more of a Trinitarian way as two persons, the same God. But here, the way it's actually written is he's referring to Jesus as deity. So in the original language, if you're reading this, we go, okay, so this is not God the Father and God the Son. This is the God and Savior Jesus. This, this is important to Peter, even if we go back into the Gospels. When Jesus in is Matthew 16, he's meeting with the disciples, and he's asking, who do the people say that I am? And they throw out a bunch of different answers. And then he says, who do you say that I am? It's actually Peter who speaks up. And if you remember from Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so... This was the correct answer, by the way. Jesus is like, that's so correct that you didn't figure that out on your own, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. And so we know that the deity of Christ is really important to Peter, and it's really important to our faith. We don't see Jesus as a second-rate deity or a rabbi or a great teacher or an inspirational figure in history, but that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God and Jesus is God. And so he embeds that here in this opening as he describes Jesus as the means by which, right, that we have this equal standing in our faith. It comes from the righteousness that we get from Jesus who is God. That's another way to say it. Now this takes us back to really our salvation. Like if you're here today and you're not familiar with church or you're not familiar with what the gospel is, the idea just in simple terms is this. Um, that in order to live with God forever, um, you have to be holy and perfect. Something inside of you kind of knows that already. That's that I don't feel good enough to be in heaven kind of thing inside of you. There's a problem. I'm not perfect. I am not holy. So I, so, so I, I don't know that I really get to get into heaven. Hopefully I can do enough good stuff, but I don't know if I can get into heaven. The gospel is this, that Jesus has come to do all that is required of you, and he lived a perfectly holy life. And when you trust in him and believe in him, he actually gives you that as, his righteousness as a gift. He makes you perfectly holy, which is this beautiful, miraculous gift of God. And so you and I are of equal standing in our faith because we both receive the same righteousness gift. There isn't a comparison of you versus me or you versus somebody across the room. And I wonder where I stack up in the kingdom of God. I'm way better than that guy. I mean, I'm doing a way better job than him. But that lady over there, I mean, she like, 
prays on her knees every day. She reads like three chapters of scripture every day. So it's like she's up here and I'm here and there's this, this guy over here. No, like the idea is no, you've either been given the righteousness of Jesus or you've got no hope at all. And the good news is that if you're in Christ by faith, we have all received this righteousness. And so that's why it's so important to see Jesus as deity. The Son of God has given to you as a gift His righteousness. And He says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that phrase actually shows up in the first letter in His opening. May grace and peace be multiplied. If you're in Christ, you've tasted a grace and a peace that's beyond yourself. But what Peter's saying is, I, I would love to see that increase for you. More of it, more grace, more peace. And in 2 Peter, he again gives us the means by which, which really kind of outline where we're about to go, that we get this multiplying grace and peace in our lives. Maybe good just to stop and ask the question, does anybody in this room need more grace or, and or more peace? Maybe why you're here today. There's this inner turmoil that just is leaving you restless and without answers and what worked yesterday isn't working today and you're hoping that maybe today you might hear something that might grant you a little peace. Turn the volume down on the chaos just enough, just enough to keep your sanity. How about the grace piece? Maybe you had one of those weeks where you come in today just really beating yourself up. I was a really lousy dad this week. I was a really lousy mom this week. I was a really lousy spouse or coworker or friend or Christian. I just feel like I failed more than I succeeded this week. And so you're coming in today hoping you'll hear something or experience something that might confirm that God still has a little bit more grace in his bucket for you. He hasn't poured it all out on you yet. He's got a little bit more. This is Peter's hope in reading this letter that we would experience an increasing, a multiplying grace and peace from God. So he says, may, the, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in something. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus. This is more of a Trinitarian reference. God the Father, God the Son. So may the grace and peace be multiplied in you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, just stop for a minute. So, for the Hebrews, um, the idea of knowledge of someone, it, it implied intimacy. It was just more than information. This is why if you're reading through some translations of the Old Testament, you can actually conceive by knowing somebody. To know somebody, right, implied an, an intimacy. Now, along come the Greeks and the Romans with, a, with oftentimes a higher emphasis on knowledge as information, and that begins to get distorted. Um, Jesus says something in John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. This is Jesus saying this, that this is eternal life, that they, meaning us people would know you the only true God and Jesus Christ from whom you have sent 
And so what happened then in the first century, you've got a heavy Greek and Roman influence on, I mean, just the language of the scriptures. The New Testament is written in Greek. It's going to have a heavy Greek influence. And so even, even Christianity was beginning to be impacted by this. This idea that the essence of Christianity is knowledge. I've got to have this knowledge. I've got to unlock the knowledge out of this, this Greek word, gnosis, um, came the Gnostics. They were those who would seek after knowledge, and, and that was the means by which you get to heaven was more knowledge. And so they take a verse like this that says that this is eternal life, that they know you, and they take that verse and run with it and just start to increase knowledge and think that's enough to get into heaven, to become righteous. As long as I've got more knowledge than you, I'm higher up on the ladder. So what's interesting is by the time that Peter writes this, and we're probably around 64, 65, 66 A.D., Gnosticism was already having its way. And so in response to that, a lot of the later Christian writings would actually change the Greek word to epignosis, meaning full knowledge, implying a knowledge that can only come through a relationship, getting to know someone or something, attempting to kind of recapture that Hebrew idea of knowledge or knowing someone in intimacy. And so here, Peter does not use gnosis. He uses epigenosis. He says that it's through this knowledge that our grace and our peace will be increased. That's really good news. It's really good news. What he's saying is, do you, do you need grace to increase in your life? Do you need peace to be multiplied? That will come from a deepening relationship with God where you get to know him more and more. Okay, well, that's good news. So I don't have to just learn more information and become a biblical scholar. That's not going to lead me to peace. No, it doesn't. Good information, very interesting, can be helpful, but isn't the means by which you will obtain more grace or peace. We continue reading. It's going to unpack some more. Verse 3 says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, there's that idea again, of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So stop there. So now he shifts in verse 3 saying not only has the righteousness of Christ been given to you, granted to you, um, but you also have the power of God. Matter of fact, you have been granted or given um, His divine power for you, enough of it that pertains to what? Life and godliness or living a godly life. So again, you're in a really hard situation. Life is rough. You're suffering. You're being persecuted. I'm sure these Christians had a lot of chaos in their lives and even struggled to believe that God still loved them at times because things were so hard. He's saying, hey, God's grace and his peace be multiplied through you through your growing knowledge of who he is. And by the way, you still have the power of God. Just because you've been exiled doesn't change that. His divine power has been granted to you, given to you as a gift. It's been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So in, in God's call to you to 
turn away from the old you, to put behind you, right, the sin and the corruption of who you used to be, and to pursue righteousness in Christ, not as a means to get it your way into heaven, but because you already have it, like, he's given you that power. Let me just make it as practical as I can. If I find myself in a situation on Tuesday where I'm struggling between a godly decision or an ungodly decision, um, I have the power within me, the Holy Spirit within me. And so to choose godliness, and sometimes I doubt. Like, I'm like, I want to do the godly thing, but I don't know if I'm going to pull it off. Does anybody else ever have that struggle? Yeah, I, I know the right thing to do. That's not the problem. I'm afraid I'm going to try and fail. Okay, so this, this verse applies now. I go, okay, I've, I actually have been granted the divine power, all that is necessary to pursue godliness, to say, yes, I'm going to do the godly thing. And I do that by faith. I don't do that rooted in my, my own ability to go, no, I, I can pull this off. And I go, hey, I, I have some doubt here. And last time I tried, I struggled and I didn't pull it off. But, but I'm going to step in faith towards, towards godliness, towards righteousness, towards the thing God is calling me to do by faith. And trust that if I fall short, God's grace will be multiplied to me, but I'm going to continue pursuing godliness in my life because everything I need, according to what God is saying through Peter, has been given to me. His divine power has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? The knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Again, through our increasing knowledge of Jesus himself through our increasing knowledge of Jesus himself. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about where that knowledge comes from, but we need, to, we need to stop here and really nail this down. Okay, this is where God's power comes into my life. This is where his multiplied grace and peace come into my life. Through a growing knowledge, not just information, Right? But, but, but the idea of all knowledge, a complete understanding of who Jesus is. He says this is, he has called us to his own glory and excellence. Verse 4 says this, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. We'll stop for a minute here. The last sermon of this series, we will come back and talk about um, God's word in depth. Okay, the trustworthiness of it, the power of it, its position in our lives. But here, as he mentions, um, these promises of God, these precious and very great promises, um, I believe he's referring to the things that God has promised through his word. Okay, so I want you to think about that. What has God promised to you? Are you familiar with the promises of God? If not, how do you become familiar with the promises of God? He has inspired authors, human authors, to write them down for us. We don't get to make them up. Well, God promised me I would get this job. He didn't. I mean, so there's, a, there's two different views, um, or two different ways to... Um, to get to know God. I'm going to break this down. One is general revelation and one is specific revelation. All the seminary students are going, amen. I know what you're, where you're going with this. But you may be like, what are you talking about? So Romans 1 talks about how the qualities of God can be seen and witnessed, observed, and known by looking at the things he has made. 
creation. So you can look at creation and you can know things about God. General revelation. I can actually know things about God by spending time with you, paying attention. You were created by him. Actually, of all the things in creation, we're, we're meant to be the most specific reflection of who he is, but even then than that, it's just a general revelation. So I, I'll give you an example. Um, two summers ago, uh, backpacking with my two sons, uh, we were up in the mountains in Colorado um, at the Upper Salt Creek Lake, this, this gem of a lake at 12,000 feet up in the mountains. You catch lots of really big fish. It was beautiful. So we, uh, one afternoon, we decided to go up on a ridge that had, looked like it had like a really good spot to sit and kind of eat lunch and look over the valley. We did this with uh, my two boys, Hudson and Calvin. And it was on the way up or after we sat down, Hudson asked the question, hey, dad, what about the people who've never heard about God? Great question. You've probably asked this question. What about them? And I was explaining this to Hudson, like, well, this idea that God says in Romans 1 that everybody on earth who will, will just go outside and look can know things about God by looking at his creation. And then he said, what do you mean? How can I get to know God through his creation? I was like, well, let's just open our eyes and look. And we looked off through the valley at this hill, this mountain range kind of off to the north, and there were some ridges on the mountains, and you see trees. It was just this beautiful scene. I was like, what do you see? He said, I see mountains, I see a tree, sky, there's a bird, I see the river, I see, okay, well, what do those things tell you about God? He's like, I don't know, so I'm asking you. And let's just think for a minute, like, what's, what's one thing you see? And I think either him or Calvin was like, oh, I see a tree way up on the mountains. Like, okay, you see the tree. Could that tell us anything about God? Well, I don't know. Well, how did the tree get there? I said, well, that tree was a seed and it fell from another tree and kind of explained that whole process. And I was like, oh, good job. You're paying attention in school. Where did that tree come from? I was like, well, that one came from a seed. And he just started explaining the process of how trees beget trees, beget trees and seeds and temperature and the climate has to be right and all the, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. Like, what, does it tell you anything about God? I'm like, well, he designs things that, that live. He designs things that like, kind of carry on and go like, give life away, and they're trying to like, get their heads wrapped around. I was like, yeah. And isn't it cool that like, all these trees like, a long time ago didn't just decide to quit living and then die, and then we don't have any more trees? Like, yeah, well, he sustains the life he creates. So we just kind of did this, kind of played this game for a few minutes, and we talked about beauty and how beautiful it was. I was like, what does that tell you about him? Like, well, that he's a creative designer. That he values things that are beautiful. He could have made the whole universe this really, really ugly place that looked like Mars. Didn't. Turns out there's really beautiful things you can see when you go outside. And we have a creator who values beautiful things and, and knows how to create them in a way that can take your breath away. We did this for a while, but there's just a few examples of that conversation. That's general revelation. You see a mom with a newborn baby, and there are going to be qualities about that relationship that are going to tell you about who God is. But specific revelation is when we get into the words. We sang earlier, could all of creation suddenly articulate? See, that's the problem. The mountain can't talk, and the tree can't talk, and the sky can't talk. Right? But we actually have words from God by which we can get to know him. Not just information, but relationally. We can know that, hey, when I'm going through something hard, 
when my soul is stricken with grief and I don't know what to do, I read his word. I say, what do I do with my grief? God says, bring your grief to me. I grieve with those who grieve. See, through specific revelation, I learned something about who God is and it invited me deeper into relationship with him. When I make promises, like I'll never do this thing again. This sin is never gonna happen again. And then two weeks later, I do the thing I promised I would never do. What do I do with that? I go to his word and I go, is there any hope for me? What, what happens there? And I read that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's written in words. And I get to know God intimately. I get to experience God through a specific revelation. We're not guessing anymore. We're not looking at trees and guessing. We can know who God is. And so here now for the second time, Peter points to this knowledge. He says this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellencies by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. It's why the word of God has a central place in our worship. It's why we ask an elder to come up and just read the passage before we open it together, even without words being on the screen, just to let God's word speak, let God's word breathe in the room, hear it, then let's start talking about it. Trusting that God's word alone has more to say than I do or anybody else who might get up here. So he continues on in verse four, so that through them, what are, what are the, what's the them? His precious and great promises. So through his precious and great promises, through them, you may become something. This is where we're gonna land today that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. What a beautiful and powerful invitation to you and to me to become partakers. So this word in the Greek language, it's koinonos, which is very similar to koinonia, um, roots the same meaning. Uh, so the idea of koinonia, fellowship, it's the idea of, of we're doing something together. We apply it to worship, like we are talking about like giving earlier or like when we sing together across the room. We're, our voices are coming together. We're joining in on something. That's fellowship, koinonia. When we spend time together in intentional relationships, more than just talking about how work is going or what the rangers are doing. Those are all fun and interesting. We actually get into the meat of life together. and We share life together. We're partaking together. We're sharing. That's koinonia. And so here, that same root word is being used to describe this getting to know God, this relationship I have with God, that I'm actually a partaker. I'm having a fellowship with what or with whom. We are partakers of the divine nature. Uh, we spent some time in the last series talking through this. Actually, in the last Sunday, we talked through this. This is the idea that as a Christian, I am being transformed back into the Imago Dei, the image of God before the fall. 
Before the fall, Adam and Eve had divine qualities, divine attributes. When you looked at them, the general revelation was very specific. It was very clear who created them and what he was like. After the fall, that gets distorted. It's hard to know who the creator is by looking at his creation sometimes, isn't it? Is he patient? I don't know because I meet a whole lot of humans who aren't. Is he loving and kind? I don't know because I'm running into a whole lot of humans that aren't. Right? You with me how it gets distorted? But what Peter's getting at here is this work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. The third person of the Trinity working in us, bringing multiplied grace to us, multiplied peace to us. He's working in us to bring divine power for us to live in godliness is transforming us back into the image of God. If you are a Christian, you are a partaker in God's divine character and qualities. Which goes back to why we need righteousness to be given as a gift, right? Because if we don't have it, like, Oh, no, now I go back to this latter thing. I go, I see more of Jesus in her. I see less of Jesus in him. I'm somewhere in between. No, 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 equal standing because righteousness has been given as a gift. And as you get to know Jesus more and more, a growing knowledge of who he is through specific revelation, through general revelation, through your relationship with him, you're going to become more like him. That's how worship works. Worship works that way, whether you're worshiping Jesus or not, actually. The Psalms talk about idols and idol worship and how we worship things that have eyes but can't see and mouths but can't talk and thing, these things in life that make us promises but can't deliver. But the end of that says, and those who worship them become like them. So the point of this is like, you're actually becoming like Jesus through your growing knowledge of who he is. This is the... The divine nature of God, and you and I are partakers in that, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. So here's a, maybe uh, some ways we can conclude today. Through your biblical and relational knowledge of Jesus, he has provided everything you need for godly living. So this is not an invitation, try harder. Come on, work hard. You can do it. Try harder. If anything, it's just let's, let's believe more deeply. Let's trust more deeply. Let's have more some sense of faith in who God is and what he's doing in us. As Peter opens up his second letter here, God is reminding us that in the midst of suffering, we can find strength in knowing him more deeply. That's where our strength will come from, pressing in to know him more deeply. This knowledge is more than knowing a lot about God. This is the full knowledge of God that can only come from a personal relationship with Jesus. God's grace, his peace, and his power are available to you today by the same means. Like today. You have to sign up for a class, fill an application today. His grace, his peace... And his power are available to you today by the same means, through a deepening relationship with him and by trusting his promises. 
Maybe you wanted more. You're like, no, I need, I need, I need 12 steps. I need 10 steps. I need, I need a list of things to do so I can know I did it. And Jesus is saying to you, that's not how I work. Here's how I work. Take what I offer and it's yours. That's the promise. Take what he offers and you have it. And so if you're here today and Nick was talking about communion and you don't know Jesus, you're not a Christian and you're still trying to figure some things out, I just want to invite you to consider taking that step of faith today to at least start getting to know him. Where do I start? I would start at the cross. I don't know what you know about the cross, but this is the, the symbol of what Jesus did for you. It's the symbol of the Son of God coming to earth to live that righteous life on our behalf. And then he died sacrificially to to pay a price that we couldn't pay. He actually paid off what you owe. He was buried in a grave, and if you know the Easter story, he resurrected three days later. It's a big deal. In doing so, he displayed his power as deity, but he also broke the chains of sin and death for us. And so simply by believing in that part of the gospel, you can be saved. You can begin your relationship with Jesus today saying, hey, I believe you're the son of God. You died for my sins. You were buried and you rose again. I want to start there. And you can grow in that knowledge day by day. If that's where you are today and you want to talk with somebody, our prayer partners will be down front at the end. Love to pray with you. If you need to slip away into a prayer room, those are always available. There's three of them out here in the commons. They're labeled. Um, the light's off as you walk in. The lights just come on. They're, it's, pretty, it's pretty neat that way. Just feel free to take up space there. Grab a prayer partner, an elder, a pastor. Uh, elders will be wearing uh, lanyards out in the commons as well, available if you need anything, okay? I want to pray for us. Um, as the worship team sings, I hope that you'll consider how you can respond uh, to God's word today. And uh, let's do that. Father, thank you for your word and God, the way that, um, God, you reveal yourself through words. Um, you don't just leave it up to the, the birds and the trees and the mountains and the rivers to communicate who you are, but you've given us um, actual words. And so in your Bible, we find these beautiful, precious promises. And today, I'm, I'm just hoping, like my want this morning is for us to grow in our trust in your promises. Like every person in this room, everybody in this room who is a Christian would grow in their trust in your precious promises. And any person who's here today who's not a Christian would take that first step to find out if you truly are trustworthy, to simply believe in the gospel, Jesus, that you have died and risen from the grave, and by trusting in you, we can have forgiveness of sins and a growing relationship with you. So Father, we give you this time, ask that you to move and work. We pray all this in Jesus' name.